and it's my um, great pleasure to introduce Simon Hughes. It's a great honour that we have him with us. Um, he's a parliamentarian who has a particular interest in the making of peace. And Simon, we much appreciate your coming here tonight and your interest in the Ox Peace Project. Um, I feel that I should remind us all that Oxford has not always thought of parliamentarians as coming in peace. <laughs> Bullets once flew exactly where we are sitting. In the 17th century, for those who don't know, the King and Parliament were briefly at war with one another. Oxford was a royalist stronghold, and its northern defences were right here. So we have in St John's College a souvenir of a different kind of parliamentary visit. It is round, it is made of two half shells of iron, welded together. It is about the size and, breadth, size and shape of a large grapefruit. It is a cannonball. It was lobbed at us from somewhere north of St. Giles Church by the Parliamentary Army in 1644 during one of several sieges of Oxford. And this cannonball landed harmlessly in our gatehouse. Though really, Simon, it could have hurt somebody. <laughs> and if you'd like to see it, it's in our library. Simon Hughes is a Liberal Democrat MP for Southwark and Bermondsey, is co-chair of the all-party parliamentary group on conflict issues, and a member of an international network of parliamentarians focused on questions of peace. The all-party group was created in 2006, which is just about when the conversations which led to the formation of Ox Peace were starting here in Oxford. The all-party group has regular open meetings in Westminster to promote dialogue between parliamentarians, Her Majesty's Government, and civil society on alternative methods of preventing and resolving conflict. Last Tuesday, for example, Simon was chairing an open meeting of the group on Cyprus, trying to see whether civil society in Cyprus could do something to move along the political logjam there. In 2001, Simon chaired the second ever debate in the Commons on conflict issues. So Simon will speak on the aim of the all-party group to challenge traditional attitudes held in Parliament and the government towards conflict by shifting the focus to improving resource allocation and increasing capacity for early warning and conflict prevention initiatives and moving towards an integrated top-down, bottom-up approach with stronger involvement of local peace builders. Simon Hughes. <laughs> um, I could spend the next uh, half an hour being partly Welsh by origin, um, speaking at you unbrokenly, um, which Welsh people can do very easily, um, not least because having just shown that we're the best team in rugby in the world nearly, um, we have every justification for f feeling proud. But I won't do that because I want to have a bit of engagement with you before I finish, because uh, the first thing, Liz, I want to say is thank you very much for having formed and grown the project. Um, Oxford, as you rightly said, doesn't always have a history of um, being on the progressive side of the argument. I went to another university uh, which competes with this one occasionally in various sports uh, and I was sort of always glad I went there because it was always better, it seemed to me, to be on the parliamentary side than the royalist side retrospectively in the Civil War. 
Uh, and although Cromwell had some rather autocratic and unpleasant puritanical tendencies, uh, nonetheless, in the end, when it comes to the crunch, just whether you're on the side of the people or the king, it seems to me you've got to be on the side of the people. So um, uh, Oxford has uh, work to do to catch up, but it, it's very important. <laughs> it's very important, that, and I say this seriously, that you're here, and very important that there are so many people here from so many parts of the world who have relevant experience. And what I want to do, this is a bit self-indulgent, but it, I hope, will explain the few things I want to say, which is really partly to pick up Liz's challenge of sharing with you where we're at in our parliamentary activity, better to help what you all do, uh, whether it's in this country or in other countries where you come from or where you'll go back to or where you work. Because what I'm talking about is not about things that are relevant only to England or to the UK, and I hope people will see the, the wider relevance of that. Um, I was fortunate, I suppose, to, to be brought up in a family where my dad in particular had a hugely um, uh, sympathetic and engaging interest in world affairs. Uh, this manifested itself in very practical ways, as all of we four boys would tell you. Um, for example, in father waking us up at four o'clock in the morning to tell us the latest international news that he heard on the World Service uh, and thinking we needed to know A and B, do something about it. <laughs> so, for example, when Turkey invaded Cyprus, um, whichever side of the argument you were on in 1974, um, I was 23 at the time. I happened to be at home back visiting parents. Uh, Dad, true to form, he wasn't to live very many years longer than that. Uh, was there making sure I was fully awake and compass mentis <laughs> in the middle of the night to assess with him what we ought to do about it. Um, but actually it derived, it derived from a really good justification. His father had left school as he did at 14 and had uh, sailed in sailing ships around the world. He'd, from North Wales, taking slates from the uh, port of Port Maddox to Latin America to Newfoundland to uh, Southern Africa and had a global understanding of the world and, and later came to serve in the, in the forces uh, and to write about sailing ships from North Wales. Uh, and countries like Wales, um, which are obviously small countries which depend on their international connections, are probably much better places to realise the interconnectedness of the world and the obligation of all of us to participate. And so I was very grateful for that and, and from an early age took an interest in international affairs, particularly in, in, in areas of conflict. Uh, we moved when I was 18 to Hereford, um, not a place where you think of associated with conflict particularly, in, uh, on the borders of England and Wales. And the first letter I was ever moved, and I don't say this because I'm arrogant about it, the first letter I was ever moved to write to a local paper, to any paper actually, was to the Hereford Times on the subject of the rights of Palestinians. Well, I. Um, I don't know whether anybody here is a great expert in the correspondence columns of the Hereford Times, but um, <laughs> I, I think it's probably true to say there the, they haven't had a lot of letters on the rights of Palestinians. <laughs> uh, uh, but it was something that I felt very strongly about as a teenager and have not ceased to feel strongly about since then. And at university, then doing European studies in Bruges at the College of Europe, then working in Brussels in the Commission, uh, then working in the Council of Europe as a lawyer, uh, in the Commission and Court of Human Rights, then being a human rights lawyer, then accidentally being elected to Parliament uh, in the sense that I was stupid enough uh, to 
uh, be in a seat where two weeks before the election I was 100 to 1 against and didn't put any money, money on myself. Uh, otherwise I would have been very rich and not needed to go around <laughs> speaking to groups like you for great sums of money to keep me going. Um, and, and then in Parliament was very privileged to be elected to the community where I live and, and lived before then which is in Southwark which was, like many in our city communities, a community of people from all over the world. Um, in those days, large numbers of people from Ireland, a country with huge conflict history, and now a fantastic exemplar of conflict resolution in the North, which much of the world could do well to use and learn from and is. Um, then, uh, representing a large number of people from Cyprus, or quite a large number of people, an unresolved conflict. I'm going there next weekend, inshallah, to uh, see if I can make a little contribution to try to follow what Liz, you talked about, which was the really, really encouraging uh, evening we had the other night. Which was, and not just, it wasn't a one-night meeting and everybody went away. The group brought seven people from Cyprus, working in the community, in business, in women's groups, in youth groups, to talk about bottom-up conflict resolution. And their one message above all was, look, since the um, troubles of the 70s, uh, everybody's tried to bring about peace by just getting the leaders of the two communities to negotiate. Actually, that's often the last way that's going to produce success. And I should add, when the two leaders of the communities traditionally are old men, steeped in the uh, prejudices of their tribe, then it's going to be a very tall order. And if we could see the pressure to come from the business groups, from the traders, from the women's groups, from the faith groups, from the young people, from the sports people, saying, you know, this is just not acceptable, then there would be far more chance, I think, that we'd work. And we, in a way, Liz will, I think, testify to this, the mandate, the meeting sort of gave any of us with an interest is to go and get the message across saying after the six months later this year when Cyprus holds the presidency of the EU when the Turks are not going to want to talk at all and then the Cypriot elections for its new president in February, which is obviously a bad time to try to do peace building in the run-up to election. People aren't terribly minded not to be nationalistic in those circumstances. Once those are out of the way, then we need to have tried to establish a new framework which could deliver the sort of things that South Africa wonderfully, wonderfully delivered to take people from an apartheid South Africa to a post-apartheid South Africa. I think there can have been very few better examples that I've witnessed at first hand than the way in which there was a positive acceptance by, by the de Klerks of this world eventually that everybody had to be engaged. So all parties, all faith groups, all races, the trade unions, the businesses, the women's groups, the young people. And they were determined that they had to have a solution that everybody would buy into. And only that would, would work. And that's what they did. And that's why it's been, I know in economic difficulties and there are other difficulties, but so phenomenally successful and peaceful. And in our little modest way in the United Kingdom, after when I first went to Parliament, feels like an age ago, it was 20, nine years ago, but um, when I first went, I mean, it really was beyond comprehension that there would be devolution to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. It just was, I mean, it's, we've come such a long way in this country. But the only way it's happened is by getting everybody together. So in Scotland, Donald Dewar, uh, the Labour Scottish Secretary, to his great credit, understood that it was no good the Labour Party suddenly saying, we're converted, we believe in it. 
driven, I think, to be fair, Donald would have said if he was here, by the politics that they were losing out to the Scottish nationalist tide and therefore had to respond. But he understood that you needed the churches and the academics and the, and the um, trade unionists and the community groups and the voluntary sector to buy in. And he got them all together and the Constitutional Convention delivered a settlement. And in Wales it's delivered a settlement and they're looking further at what it... And in Northern Ireland it absolutely delivered a settlement of the people behind which the governments of Ireland and the UK of course played a big part, but in the end of the day they couldn't deliver. It had to be the people on the ground who delivered, not the people from outside. So um, that was an interest that uh, grew. I represent a lot of people from Bangladesh. Bangladesh is again going through a really difficult time and the India subcontinent, some of you here from the India subcontinent, um, uh, externally terribly successful in some ways. India phenomenally successful economically and uh, uh, growing power. Um, but still not a subcontinent in any way stable or at peace, bluntly. Um, Sri Lanka still trying to recover from the most dreadful, dreadful civil war with a constitution where uh, it, is a, it is a Buddhist constitution which is the faith of the majority community, which by definition puts anybody who's not in that faith group at a disadvantage from the beginning. The Maldives, uh, most people in the UK only know about the Maldives as a place you go for your honeymoon or or go for a holiday that isn't your honeymoon, but you pretend it is. Um, but the Maldives was a country which, until four years ago, you couldn't live in unless you were a Muslim. An extraordinary position for a Commonwealth country in the beginning of the 21st century. And with therefore a really frozen constitution. And actually, in a very small little island, uh, all the conflict. Pakistan, still a country struggling with uh, how to uphold the human rights of everybody. Uh, really difficult to respect the rights of people from minority faith communities like the Christians uh, in Pakistan still. Afghanistan, we know exactly the struggle. Constituents of mine killed in the process. Uh, friends of mine, funeral uh, undertakers in Bermondsey, going every week to bring bodies back uh, because that conflict hasn't been resolved. Not resolved on the ground. It's nothing about the UN not resolved on the ground. Um, and in India, I was there in the autumn, uh, for two reasons. One, to go to support my Sikh friends in Amritsar, who are still hurting after the events of the uh, siege of the Golden Temple, um, and who feel that they're still disadvantaged. Um, one of the leading Sikh people, academics, is on death row in India, and has been for many years, and the president has refused to exercise her power of pardon. Um, and therefore, it's likely that there will continue to be a sense of uh, different levels of entitlement in that country. And then I went up into Himachal Pradesh, uh, again to have the privilege of meeting the Dalai Lama, uh, trying, struggling, as he's been in the UK this week, to help find a way to persuade the Chinese that actually you can have self-government in China without the whole of the state falling apart. Indeed, they do have self-government in many other parts of China other than Tibet. Hong Kong is self-evidently self-governing uh, as part of the post-British handback settlement, but other parts of China too, but they won't countenance, they can't quite countenance the idea it should happen for people who are Buddhists in Tibet. So that, to me, bluntly, has been my motivating international interest for 30 years and more. Um, and therefore, the more of you there are who are engaged in this process, internationally and multilaterally, uh, the better. 
And in Parliament, for many years, um, we made little progress on these issues, to be honest. I've, Liz, I don't really have time to unpack my analysis of the global situation for structures of peacekeeping, but put it very simply this way. The UN, which of course it's better that it's there than it's not there, but, but the UN with its vested interests represented in the Security Council of the five permanent members who will veto activity when it's not in the interests of China or Russia or um, France or the US or us, um, has in many ways been a barrier to progress rather than uh, a cause of progress. The UN has been a place where, to take a controversial example, in a way you can have as many resolutions as you like saying that the Israeli government has acted unfairly towards the Palestinians, but actually then there is no follow-through that delivers something that rights the wrongs of the Bedouins being forced to move all the time around uh, from the places where they were born and brought up. Um, the UN, which during, we were just talking about it, during the Sri Lankan Civil War, uh, I know because I spoke directly to the relevant senior people, was incapable even of dropping in food parcels to the Tamils in the north as the Sri Lankan army was closing in on them. It was just said, we can't do it without the permission of the government of Sri Lanka. And the government of Sri Lanka said no. And therefore genocide was going on again and the UN was absolutely powerless. So, so we have the structures, but they're not structures that yet are flexible enough and effective enough and uh, uh, sensible enough to be able to, often to live. Of course, there are very good diplomats and people who are skilled at diplomacy. Of course, there are people who can bring the authority of the world community, but, but we need more than that. We've seen an advance in regional uh, structures. Europe is the most advanced. And thank God for that, and the European Union, one of the reasons why some of us have been pro-Europeans, meaning in favour of the European Union all our, all our lives, is because we understood that you'd be more effective on the global stage, united than separate. The 27 countries will be more useful, as it were, arguing the same case and arguing 27 different cases, uh, whether it was in uh, Bosnia and, and Southeast Europe, not terribly effectively, or whether it's trying now to uh, influence other conflicts in the world. And other continents are beginning now, other regions are beginning to develop more effective structures. Um, Africa has become better at developing uh, its own uh, forces for intervention and uh, peace creating and conflict resolution. They're not perfect, of course they're not perfect, but it's far more likely, it seems to me, that Africans will persuade other Africans to be peaceful than colonial white Europeans will persuade Africans to be peaceful. It's far more likely that Arabs uh, would persuade other Arabs to be peaceful than American bombers would persuade Arabs to be peaceful. Um, and, and therefore we need to keep on building the regional structures. Um, but we need to do more than that because we still have a culture which is in the, West, in, in the democracies of the world which is built on the old nationalistic traditions basically of defending your territory and its rights and interests. And it was true of course that until recently most of the conflicts of the world were territorial. Can I hold on to this land uh, or can I gain some other land? Or am I willing to cede some land that we took without anybody's permission? And Britain's the best example of that probably in the world. Parenthesis really, I always get a bit cross when people complain that people come to the UK as economic migrants when it seemed to me that for about a thousand years we went everywhere else in the world uh, <laughs> to try to get an economic advantage without asking anybody's permission at all. 
and it's not surprising if people therefore think that it might be a good idea to try to come back to somewhere more um, likely to give them a living than where they are. But um, that, I guess, is a truth that uh, no government will easily buy. Um, but we, we need to move from a realisation that the world uh, isn't now likely to be having conflicts normally because of territory. It's likely, and we were talking about it on some of the tables, we're having conflicts because of resources, because of the capacity to find the water, uh, the struggle over where the uh, oil might be, uh, where the capacity for food is. Um, and we need, therefore, to have a much more effective trigger system for thinking about how we prevent these before they happen. I mean, all the figures you all know, you're, many of you experts, um, the cost of, of the war and putting things right is hugely, thousands of times more costly than the cost of the activities of preventing conflict in the first place. And therefore it dawned on us gradually in Parliament that we needed, I mean, putting it really bluntly, to change what used to be the Ministry of War to being a Ministry of Peace. I mean, putting it really sort of crudely and simplistically and, and totemically, to move from a society where you saw your government's department's international first responsibility as one of defending yourself to one where you were promoting peace and delivering peace. And that has gradually become something that at least people are talking about. We spend 2% roughly of our budget in the UK on defence. Uh, other countries, Saudi Arabia spends 8%, I think. Um, obviously, America spends half of 40% of the world's bud budget on defence is American uh, defence budget. And the five uh, permanent members of the UN are the five biggest spenders. Um, and there are pressures of people to support the defence industry, even in this country. This government, of which my party is a coalition partner, has seen its prime minister, for understandable reasons, going with businessmen from, U from BAE, to sell weapons to developing countries because it's in the interest of our exports. And MPs from Lancashire seats, to take an example, um, would find it very difficult to speak out against the development of British uh, aerospace or British aeronautical engineering or other defence contractors because lots of their workers work in those firms. And therefore, it takes quite a big <laughs> tanker movement to turn around to get from the idea that actually selling weapons or selling arms, even if we're saying it's not for our own self-aggrandizement and to give ourselves that capacity, it's to make sure that new developing independent countries can be protected against uh, an aggressor, change into a culture where we think actually it's much more important to uh, prepare for peace and prevent conflict. The sort of things we've done since we founded the group are five, and I'll just give you these as examples, an encouragement really. One, we have joined the network Liz referred to of parliamentarians around the world who argue for conflict prevention and conflict resolution and for more resources on that and less on conventional defence. So it's not just us in the UK, it's a group of us who speak on the phone regularly from the Middle East, from Australia, from Latin America, from Germany and so on, who are in our own parliaments, in different parliaments, making the same case and trying to do so. Uh, secondly, we try to intervene at crucial moments when leaders are talking together. So at the G7, the G8, the G12, the G20, I've lost contact with what, with what numbers there are. <laughs> Invent a number and you can find a G to go with it. But, um, 
but before those conferences, to try to make sure the leaders have on their agenda conflict prevention and conflict resolution and not just other things which talk about raising money and spending money. And, and, and make sure, therefore, that together with the Millennium Goals-type issues, we also have peace-building-type issues at a global level as well as at a localised level, where obviously individual government departments like those we were talking about to do with Sudan and South Sudan and the Department for International Development in the UK do their bit together with the European Union to deliver in areas where we can be influential. So the second thing we do is seek to influence governments coming together to change the direction of policy and try to change the balance of their priorities. The third thing we do um, is we have tried to put on the agenda of all political parties a greater emphasis on conflict prevention and conflict resolution. And for example, before the last election, we negotiated that all three major parties in the UK would have a, an identical commitment to increasing resources and capacity and priority on these matters in government. All three parties. So when the general election happened, it was much easier for us in the, in the group in Parliament to go to the new Foreign Secretary once appointed and say, please start thinking about this, because his party had agreed before the election that it would be on their agenda as it was our agenda, and we had support from the Labour Party, which had been a government and was an opposition. And therefore, encouragingly, you have had William Hague speaking on the floor of the House of Commons and ministers in uh, debates at Westminster Hall saying, we are changing the nature of the priorities of some of our missions, we're, we're building up trade, we think that's very important, but we are giving bigger priority to conflict prevention and conflict resolution, both in the capacity of our staff and in the priority we give it in our engagement with the government who hosts our missions. So it's changed, and we need to go on changing that, and it's a partly about resources, but it's also about attitude and about uh, priority and about the polity of the way in which we do our diplomacy and our foreign affairs and, and, and do our business. The fourth is that we need, and this may sound a strange thing to say next, we need to change a culture from the time children go to school so that they understand that conflict prevention and conflict resolution is better as something we all know how to do from the classroom to the family to the workplace uh, to the local council chamber or to anywhere else. And if you can't teach it early and you don't teach it early, what hope is there of being able to expect people to do it later? I was, I'm a chair of governors of a primary school. I was in our primary school in Bermondsey this afternoon, lovely, very successful primary school. And I, as I went in, the head teacher was fantastic had two little boys, a bit stereotypical, but they happen to be boys, um, who were in her office uh, being dealt with for having f broken out in a fight in the school. And she was handling it fantastically. She uh, not only, obviously, rebuked them and got them to understand the folly of what they're doing, but then got them to talk through what they could have done and how they could have done it and why they didn't do it. Um, and actually, it was a church school and actually reminded them that this morning's assembly uh, had some teaching on this matter about turning the other cheek, and that they clearly either hadn't been listening, or uh, if they had been listening, uh, didn't follow it. One had clearly been listening and remembered it, and the other had a rather good alibi, which she said he wasn't there because he was doing extra reading somewhere else. Um, 
but she said that wasn't an excuse because he'd heard the message before. Um, but, but, but I make a serious point, which is that it's about a cultural attitude of, of learning how to cope, mediation in schools, training mediators. We're just starting in Parliament uh, and a service for parliamentarians and their staff to help parliamentarians in being better mediators of conflicts in our communities. Because lots of conflicts come to parliamentarians. And to be honest, they're really difficult often. They can be silly things. They can be in the conflict between two people in adjacent properties, one a residential property and the other a bakery, because the bakery, surprise, surprise, starts work at four o'clock in the morning and makes a bit of noise. And the people in the flats who've just moved in don't like being woken up before seven o'clock in the morning. I mean, that, really silly things can grow into conflicts. They can be really serious things, like the most unpleasant personal moment probably I had in my life, which was when racial tensions were very high in the 80s in London. And uh, the BNP held a march through my constituency, uh, which was a white working class Docklands East End constituency. And we came as near as I've ever known it to literally racial conflict on the street as we were protesting against racism uh, in the community. I've, it's the only time I've been sick, physically sick, of fear and worry because of the politics of what was going on around me. Um, and those things need mediation and they need people to build bridges and people have the educative skills. So we're doing that. We're trying to, we're trying to build the capacity of our schools, of our uh, youth groups, of our uh, political classes and so on. Um, and lastly, we're trying to encourage people like you. We're trying to make sure that people realise that these things can be changed, that there can be a change from a world in which we spend all our time thinking in old-fashioned, civil war-type conflict uh, mindsets to ones in which we think in a more pluralistic way. And we do the things that really help. And they are lateral things. Anybody in development work knows that. They are about building up women's groups and women's capacity to lead. They're about making sure that our politics reflects gender balance much more accurately because the truth is that women are much more likely to be uh, careful to avoid that conflicted and conflictual situation than men. Uh, they're about making sure that you uh, anticipate the issues to do with exploitation of uh, land and resources and don't allow foreign private companies to start taking over and manipulating. It's about the sustainable economy, that, that sustainable world that Andrew and I were talking about a bit, um, to make sure that people understand that actually if we manage our resources in a long-term way, then there's a chance of everybody getting a share, uh, which if we're exploitative about in short-term, actually makes people much more fearful and much more greedy and much more rapacious and much more aggressive. So it's all those things. And lastly, it's about understanding that we need, bluntly, a fairer world and being aggressive about justice. Because quite rightly, the thing that drives the refugees in Gaza sometimes to join Hamas and fire rockets over into Israel is because they don't see any hope of justice. They see no hope of equality. And there are many other places of the world where it's just like that. And if there is no work and there is very little food and there's very little sense of civic pride, then to be honest, no wonder there's conflict and uh, war and so on. So we've done our few years. Um, it's an all-party group. It has more and more people. And now we're turning ourselves not just into a talk shop and a, and a sort of ideas uh, 
uh, sharer, but we're trying to do what we were doing on Tuesday, which was to take issues and deploy us with our skills in the best possible way to facilitate things elsewhere. Geoffrey Donaldson from Northern Ireland, who was a hardline Protestant unionist, is now one of the best advocates for conciliation and peace building. And we need to deploy him to other places where he's much more effective and saying, I was just like you are. I was just like you are. But I've realized that was a really stupid place to be. And I've changed. Um, I'm trying at the moment to do a bit of work, for example, very little bit of quiet work, so that the Ukrainian government, which are in trouble internationally, just before they're meant to be showing off Ukraine to the world in the football competition, because Julia Tymoshenko was in prison, could actually get off the hook, possibly, by announcing they would accept an international group of three people to <coughs> observe the Supreme Court hearing, who could report internationally as well as to the government about whether it's a fair trial. I mean, little things that just allow us to show that we can share with each other. So that's what we do. Um, we need you, whatever party you're in, in this country or in any other country, to encourage your parties to make sure that we see this as a priority. And I end with this, Liz. We saw about 40 years ago in this country, with the creation of a ministry which has become the Ministry for International Development, the need to have a department that wasn't just conventional diplomacy and foreign affairs, but actually was about taking our responsibility for the less developed part of the world and sharing the burden. And at last, after 40 years after the Brandt Commission, we've agreed to do the little bit of signing up which says we'll spend 0.7% of our GDP on international aid. Uh, and that's going to be an honourable outcome of this government, whatever else happens. We've now realised that we need to do something else, as well as international development and overseas development. We need to do peace building and conflict resolution and conflict prevention. And it may be that in 10 or 20 years time, there will be some countries which are willing to say it's much more important to have a ministry of peace than a ministry of war. It's much more important to do what the Bhutanese do, which is to talk about wealth being wealth in human happiness, not wealth in simple economic success. Uh, and you've got a role to play in this. Um, but please be focused. Please take your academic uh, um, high intensity and deploy it. And please use all the, the places you have, the local radio stations you can phone into, the local papers you can write to, the marches you can go on, the classes of youngsters you can talk to. Just use the spaces you have to say we have to do these things differently. There are fewer conflicts in the world, but the capacity for conflict and the reality of conflict is still far too high and the dangers in the world are still as great in many ways as they always have been. And the fact that it may look a safer place than it was to our parents and grandparents is no guarantee it will be a safer place. And we have a responsibility to do otherwise. I hope that's helpful.